The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. While you're, you're turning there, you know, sometimes Paul is practical, but he's painfully practical. I mean, he doesn't mince words. He cuts right to the heart of the matter. And that's what he does this morning. And I, and I was thinking this week about how often we as Christians are moved off uh, far too easy from the direction. I remember growing up uh, as a young boy in Vermont and I spent our winters skiing and our summers skiing on water skiing on Lake Champlain. And I learned everything the hard way. Uh, I didn't start snow skiing until I was 12, and by that time, most of my friends had been skiing six or years or more. And so when I first went out of embarrassment, I got down the mountain the same time they did. The difference was they were dry and I was white from head to toe. And it took time to learn. And it was the same thing with, with water skiing. And occasionally I would, I would have someone who wanted to ski, and they thought they had it all down. They'd read the books on water skiing, and they knew that you kept your knees bent and your arms straight, and you allowed the boat to pull you up, and what would happen for the first time, because they didn't know what to expect, they'd get pulled right through their skis into the water, and before they realized they had to let go, they'd swallowed half the lake. And in time, they would give up, or at least take them a while to come back. And you know, I've often thought about Christianity. We get all excited when we accept Christ, and we rejoice in the reality of ours that's eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with great zeal, we get into the Word of God, and we don't understand it. It seems complicated, and we don't understand the words and the tense, and what does this mean, what does that mean? And, and before long, we kind of, maybe we just back off for a little bit, and, and then maybe some things happen that are kind of concerning, and before you know it, we're just sitting on the sidelines, we're saved on our way to heaven, but we're not actively involved in our salvation. And I think this is often what happens in Christianity. Real Christianity is learned in the water, or in our case, the world. We're not to be of the world, but we're in the world. And Christ has a desire upon our lives to be active, shining lights in this world by conducting our lives in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Ah, We could stop right there. That would disqualify 99% of us right there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When I read hold fast to the word of life, it reminded me of Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So never before in history 
has it been so important in this country for Christians to have the ability both to exhort and convict, to be able to show brightly who we are and what we believe. In fact, let me have you turn to, um, look up, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I don't know if I gave this to Katrina or not, but uh, if I didn't, you can look it up. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking here about salt and light. And in Matthew chapter 5, he says, beginning of verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt, when it loses its savor, it's, it's good for nothing. And, and again, I remember growing up on the lake in the dirt roads, they would take old salt and they would come by with trucks and they would spread it all over the dirt roads to keep the dirt down. That's all it was good for at that point. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So you recall over the last couple of weeks, we realized that the whole purpose of the child of God is to bring glory to God. And you can't do it if your light is hidden. Nobody can bring glory to Jesus Christ if their Christianity is hidden. Now, not everybody intentionally hides their light. We just haven't put the effort into it to grow and adapt to be called on when God needs us. And so it's simpler and safer to sit on the sidelines. And this is what Paul's great desire for the saints of Philippi were, and it's God's desire for you and I today. We are not to retreat from the world, but we are to live for God in the world. So let's take a few moments and look at living in the world. How are we to live for Christ in the world? Well, first we must recognize that the world is a crooked and perverse place. Uh, Paul called it a crooked and twisted generation. Very contemporary language. And too often we may look at the world, especially in Westerville, and think, well, you know, it's not that bad, really. I mean, Westerville's a nice place to live, isn't it? We're kind of isolated from a lot of the things you hear in the news. But the reason for this is because the influence of the Holy Spirit is still very strong in this world. He is restraining things. In fact, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the people thought they had missed the return of the Lord. And Paul is trying to show them how that isn't possible yet because, first of all, the man of lawlessness had not been re revealed. The, the Antichrist had not been revealed. And the influence of the Holy Spirit was still here. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8, And you know... What is the restraint that, or excuse me, you, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. None of us would deny that. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one 
will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. So the influence of the Holy Spirit is still keeping things from spinning off, but he will do that until he's taken out. Well, when is he taken out? When the church is taken out at the rapture. And that's why after that, during the tribulation, everything goes haywire because the influence of the Holy Spirit is no longer here. So strip away the halo of the Holy Spirit and the blackness that God said is there is still there. Christians must constantly, constantly be aware of the working of the Holy Spirit in every one of us to make a profound difference in this world because it is the Spirit working to control. The world has its goals, of course, pleasure, success, sex, money, power, but these are not the goals of Christians. Christians know that God can grant them these pleasures and will in His way, in His time, but the whole goal of Christianity is to live for Christ and put Him before all things. So in these verses that Paul has just listed here, there are three specific goals that he is bringing to our attention. He says that life to be lived by Christians in the midst of this world is to be one first of submission to God. We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's complaining and arguing. Second, this life is to be one that is to be blameless and innocent before other people. And finally, our lives are to be without blemish before God. So let's just take a few minutes and look at these three areas. First of all, submission to God. The token of our submission is to be an attitude of life that does things without grumbling or disputing. Now the word argue or grumbling here refers to the inward reasoning of the mind and is based on the Greek word from which we get our English word dialogue. Now dialogue is a popular word. It's a word well-embraced. There's dialogue between nations. There's dialogue in the political arena. There's dialogue in different factions. And that all is good. But it's not so much a virtue when dealing with God. God does not want us in dialogue with him about how we're to respond to his word. In this context, the word points to the reasoning that goes on in the human heart and is a rebellion against God. So when such reasoning starts to express itself externally, it becomes complaining. And complaining and grumbling is something we've seen all through Scripture. In fact, one story that comes to mind is the story of the parable of the wage earners and the householder in Matthew chapter 20. If you recall, a householder hired a crew of people to work in his vineyard in the morning, and he promised them a denarius for a day's wages, and they readily agreed. And then later that morning, he hired another crew. And then at noon, he hired still another crew, and then again in the afternoon, another crew. Well, at the end of the day, when they all lined up to be paid, every one of them was given a denarius. And you might expect the ones that started early in the morning grumbled. It wasn't fair. And their grumbling was a rebellion against the householder's generosity to the others. The same word is used in Luke 5, verse 30, of the Pharisees when they saw Jesus' disciples eating with tax collectors, and they grumbled, they were offended, and they complained against these disciples. 
And of course, who can, can forget the grumbling that went on in the nation of Israel when they were 40 years in the wilderness? They grumbled and complained because they were stuck in Egypt, and God liberated them from Egypt. Then they grumbled and complained because they weren't back in Egypt. And then they grumbled and complained there was no food. God provided manna. They grumbled and complained because there was no meat. And it went on and on and on. Many of us are like that. God blesses us, but there is always something more, something that we grumble about. And often we forget the mighty God who saved us from this world, saved us from ourselves, planted our feet squarely in eternity with Him, yet we still grumble about the here and the now. So what happens when God says, I want to do this or that in your heart, and you're not sure about it? Do we grumble and complain? This is what Paul means when he says, do not argue or grumble. Paul says we are to live as people who have eternity's values in view. But nothing changes in our life, seemingly. We still live our lives as if nothing has changed and complain about just how bad the world is. Let me make a, a bold statement here. The nation is filling in the voids left by the silent church. God calls us to live as lights in a dark world, but where is the church? She's catering to the life in this world. Theology that's being taught around is success now. Having the life you want, living as if we're going to be here forever. And the sinfulness of the world is filling in the void as the light of the church is slowly put under a bushel. We are to obey and not grumble because we know that God has the very best in mind and it always leads to our benefit. Number two, we're to be blameless. The second thing Paul says to be the characteristic of the Christians is that they are to be blameless and pure in the sight of other people. The word translated innocent or pure it means without mixture. It was a word used in primitive language to talk about pure gold or pure silver or any kind of metal that was without impurities. In the same way, our lives are to be without mixture before others. We are not to say one thing and do another. So we are to be blameless, just as in the inward arguing has an outward expression of complaining is bad. So this inward characteristic of being pure has an outward expression of being blameless. Our conduct must be pure, and it can only be pure if the heart is pure. One great example of this in Scripture, of course, is Daniel. Daniel lived in the midst of ungodly Babylon, and he didn't try to stay away from everybody. He didn't try to isolate himself. He lived right in the king's palace, and in fact, he worked for the king. Moreover, when his enemies tried to do away with him, the only thing they could find fault with was his worship of Jehovah. So they finally tried to get him on a technicality, as you know the story. And they set down a stipulation, a law that said that for a period of time, no one could ask any other god or anybody else for anything except King Darius. And when Daniel continued to pray to his god, they threw him into the lion's den. 
And if you've known this story since you were a child, you know that God protected him in the, lion, in the lion's den in freedom. But not before he had received this testimony. Daniel 6, verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in a connection with the law of his God. When we don't live obediently before God, we lose our reputation before men. And Daniel is living proof that it can be done. And he didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like you and I do. Number three, without fault. Paul says we are to be blameless before God, for we are to live without fault or innocent as his children. Now, the word used here is also used in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, where it is translated blameless. It refers there, as, as it does here in the Philippians, to a Christian's relationship to God. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now see, one of the beautiful things about salvation is that you are washed in the blood of Christ. You are justified. What that literally means is that when God the Father looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Christ. You're no longer a sinner. You realize that? In fact, the Bible says you're a saint. Think about that. You are a saint before God because of what Christ has done for you. This does not mean that we become sinless, of course. Real sanctification lies in the increasing realization of how sinful we are. It means that our lives will be lived in the sight of God in such a way that they will be open before Him. There will be no barriers, nothing between us and God. Do you have barriers this morning between you and God? This may sound harsh too, but if you aren't in the Word, or if you're not praying, if you're struggling in relationships, there's a barrier before you and God that manifests itself in an outward direction. And it may not even be of your own doing, but you must let the Holy Spirit respond through you to keep you close to what God is trying to do. One of the greatest examples of this is David. David, God said, is a man after my own heart, yet we know he sinned tremendously with Bathsheba and it had consequences on his family from then on. But listen to what David said to God in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can you imagine sitting down on your knees, praying to God, and openly saying, God, search me. In fact, test me. That's a bold prayer. God, look in my heart. Test me, and if you find anything that's a barrier between you and I, 
anything that's grievous in any way, then lead me in the everlasting way. That takes a lot of nerve. That takes a lot of faith to open yourself up to God like that. We are masters of hiding. We're masters of keeping life pretty real, but hiding what's in the way. And David said, test me. If there's anything in me, anything that's causing any kind of hindrance, get rid of it, God. Because there's no future if I'm not totally open to you. So this brings us to a very real point. Living the impossible life. The process will go on through life. It is not going to be easy. And you may say, easy? It's impossible. And you're exactly right. It's totally impossible. But our God is the God of the impossible. And He does things in us and for us that we cannot do ourselves. What would your life look like if you took an immediate stand and said, enough. From this point on, I am completely surrendered to God. What would happen if that was to take place? But, but it's impossible. So let me give you some verses here to explain the impossible so that you can stand before God and say, God, test me, know me, change me. Let me be a Daniel. Let me live the life you've called me to live. And, I, and you have to begin with Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is impossible to live this life on your own. But when you allow the Spirit to live through you, it becomes possible. Now, we often think of, of, of Paul in Romans chapter 7. He goes, you know, the things that I should do, I don't. The things that I don't want to do, a wretched man that I am, who will save me from this? But then he comes to a conclusion. Romans 7.20. It is no longer I who sin, but the sin that dwells within me. It is no longer I who sin, but the sin that dwells within me. So when you are totally surrendered to Christ, the Holy Spirit is only going to lead you in that perfect life. Then after Romans 7.20, we go to, to Romans 7, or 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he commended sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. So God gave the law to show how we are to live. Nobody could do it. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like you and me, to go to the cross and pay once and for all the price demanded by holiness and the law in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Are you walking according to the flesh or to the Spirit? Your answer will dictate the outcome of your life. And then, of course, Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's only one way to live the Christian life, and that's by being in the Word. Because it renews your mind. It transforms your mind. It changes your heart. It gives you the understanding that you don't know, that you have no ability of understanding. Think of your driving test. Some of you aren't that far removed from that driving test, and some of you are pretty far removed from that driving test, but I'm sure you can remember it. What took place before you could get your license? Well, you had to go to the DMV, and you had to get the book, and you had to study the book. You had to know the book, and you had to pass a test before you could get behind the wheel of a car. And you know, we try to jump into life and drive without being in the book, getting the instruction, the clear understanding. You know, I'm sure you're like me. You drive down the road and you pick out people you want to send back to the book. You know? I always say, didn't you get driver's ed? Or something like that. But that's the way it is. You and I cannot progress to the next level until we get in the book. Yet we try to live the Christian life without ever cracking the book. And God says, this renews your mind. Now, what does it mean it renews your mind? Well, God understood that in our sinfulness, we would not be able to comprehend everything. So he packs everything into this 66 books, but then gives us the Holy Spirit to interpret and to teach us and to guide us so that no one is without excuse. So when we struggle, the answer is to get into the book and find the instructions from God. And this brings us back to our, our text from last week in Philippians 2, 12 or 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You can't get the mind of God if you're not in the book. And that is what God is saying. So what do these verses mean? Well, they mean that a person is incapable of living out the kind of life God requires of him but that God is capable of living out the life in a person who yields to his spirit. And he's given us the word, and he's given us the spirit to guide us into all truth. <clears throat> so if you're not realizing the spirit-filled, spirit-directed life, it's because you're in the way, and you're settling for a life in the flesh. When you look at the craziness that's going on in the world today and wonder why. The world has gone the way of the church. The world is filling the vacuum left by the church. We can go all the way back to the days when they took prayer out of the schools. They didn't take prayer. We let it go because our light was hidden under a bushel. 
our city was no longer seen on the hill. <clears throat> Occasionally, I get roped into the shows on the Discovery Channel. I like to see the programs about ancient things, ancient Egypt or Babylon or, or the Holy Land. And a couple of weeks ago, I got sidetracked by a program, and this archaeologist believed that she knew where Cleopatra's tomb was. And so I got kind of wrapped up in this, and I was watching it, and, and the program began where they're standing, the crew and everybody are standing on the edge of this dune, and they're just looking over miles of sand. And she points out this light settlement, this, this uh, impression in the ground, and she believes that's where it is. Who could make that kind of call? Well, of course, as the program went on, they spent weeks and months excavating, and sure enough, before long, 30, 40 feet down, they start to find the tops of pillars and <clears throat> various things. And so as the months go by, they've excavated this whole point, and they have found the temple that Cleopatra worshipped in. And then, <coughs> excuse me, they get this ground-penetrating radar, and they find shafts. And so they dig down in these shafts, and they start finding mummies. Now, <clears throat> the program ended before they found her, so i got to watch the next one. <clears throat> and I'm sure she didn't find it, or we would have heard about it. But my point was, here was this place, this holy place. Here was a place frequented by royalty. Here was a very important place, and 3,000 years later, it's completely buried in sand. And you see, what happened is as the people got less and less involved, the dirt and the desert began to take it back. And I think of my <clears throat> very own backyard. I have a wall of greenery. They're just glorified weeds, but they get really big, and they actually form a beautiful wall so I don't see any of the homes behind us. And if I keep it trimmed, it's just like a, a beautiful manicured hedge. But if I don't touch it within a month, it's encroaching in on my lawn, and half my grass is dead underneath it, and it'll just keep, it'll swallow up the backyard if I don't do anything. And what it reminds me of, when you and I don't actively live the Christian life, the dirt is going to fill in the void. It's a fact of life. It's been a fact ever since creation. Where you and I stay away from gets filled with dirt. And just as that great place of Egypt was buried over the years, and just as my backyard, if I don't keep it up, will be buried in grass and greenery, I have to cultivate the life God has given me. And if we don't do that as a church the sinfulness in the world will fill in the void. The weeds of the world are going to fill in. And this was what happens in the lives of many Christians who don't actively pursue a life of holiness. This is what happens in the life of Christians who don't say as David did, search me, test me, find anything, and trim it. Get rid of it. Dig the dirt out. Trim the hedges. Whatever it takes, God, that there's nothing between you and me then I will be a bright light in the world. And then you can use me to do your bidding. Imagine that, folks, this morning. There's not a person in this room this morning who God doesn't want to use your life. 
He has a plan. We've seen this over recent, re, uh, recent weeks. That God has a plan that he brought forth before the foundation of the world that you and I should walk in it. And it's there for us. This is what God has planned for you. You are to submit to his spirit, allowing him to make you the light in a dark world. You are to be blameless and pure both before others and God. And those who have taught you and prayed for you and nurtured you will be able to say, as Paul did to the Philippians, I did not run or labor for nothing. Evidence of a saved soul is the working of the Holy Spirit in that life. Is God working in your life? Has he planted seeds that need to grow? Has he called you to a life of holiness? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. He must increase. We must decrease. To God be the glory. And Father, we thank you this morning for the bold and accurate and straightforward words of Paul. We live in a crooked and twisted generation. And yet, we're told to be blameless before the world, before you, that we might shine as bright lights in this world. I pray, Lord, for each of us that you would search our very hearts, test us, And if there's any wickedness, any grievousness, anything in our lives that shouldn't be there, lead us in the way everlasting. And may we not go kicking and screaming, but may we go willingly surrendered that you will be glorified in our lives. Thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.